Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by Tyler Ross, canonist from the Diocese of Knoxville, to talk about recent developments in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, where Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione has publicly barred Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion, and how we should understand that action and its broader canonical and ecclesiological implications. Now, before we get started, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and select notifications. Uh, If you're so inclined, we even have a thanks button where you could make a donation if you really want to support our work. And of course, share our content uh, with your friends on social media. So, Mr. Ross, uh, why don't you get us started? What's going on here? Well, there's a lot of things going on here, I guess. But the basic idea is, um, so Archbishop uh, Cordelione, like you mentioned, um, has uh, prohibited uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion in his diocese. And of course, that's causing a lot of commentaries and everybody has their opinion on it. Um Certain bishops are coming out in support of it. Uh, Others are uh, staying maybe conspicuously silent about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's the the basics. Yeah. So so let's let's talk a little about really what is the meat of what's going on here, because um, I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding before we get into, you know, the inane sort of comments that you get from uh, from the you know, the self-appointed pundits on the question. Um, there's, there's a lot, there are, there are a lot of intelligent people, I think, um, who don't fully understand what, what actually this action involves. Mm-hmm. And um, that's understandable because, you know, most people aren't canon lawyers and this yeah. is kind of a legal question. Um, it's, I, I mean, I'm a theologian. I know a little bit about canon law, but I'm not a specialist in canon law. And I could talk for a long time about the theological implications here. I could talk about why theologically this is happening and is important. But that's a distinct question, really, from what's happening in terms of canon law and how this action functions and doesn't function, right? So so you've had, there have been some commentators who've described Nancy Pelosi uh, here as having been excommunicated by Bishop, uh, by Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione. Is that the case? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, of course, um, on a strictly legal level, uh, which I guess is what we're going to be talking about, no, um, this is a, a distinct action at canon law from an excommunication. Um, now, I, I do think it's actually worth maybe mentioning just briefly the theological like foundation of all of this, because mm-hmm. at the heart of everything, excommunications, um, be, and we'll get into this distinction in a minute, but just simply being barred from receiving communion, um, interdicts, other penalties like that, uh, is this idea of uh, the unworthiness to receive communion because of sin, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think it's just worth bringing that up and and that might be behind a lot of these commentators not fully understanding what this is. Uh, 
certainly not why, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah. most so Catholics don't even know why uh, this might be the case. So let me, let me, let me pause right there for a second, yeah. because um, let me, I'll play the, um, I'll play the devil's advocate here. Right? Okay. Um, sort of the devil's advocate, I guess. Uh, aren't we all unworthy to receive communion? Like what, mm. what kind of unworthiness are we talking about here? Yeah. Well, we say at mass, right? Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my yeah. roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So I think there is this element of unworthiness, uh, no matter what, you know, state we're in. Um, but at the same time, we do recognize that grace both heals, right. And elevate. Yeah. Uh, so only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So those of us whose soul uh, is healed by grace through repentance and faith and the sacraments, um, there is a sense actually in which those souls are worthy to receive the Eucharist um, uh, and are conformed already in virtue of other sacraments to the divine life uh, in a way that souls that are persistent in sin especially even if they have just committed one uh, mortal sin um, are not conformed to the life of grace. And as we read also from St. Paul will eat and drink condemnation unto themselves uh, by receiving Holy communion, which makes sense too. like, what does, mm -hmm. what, when, when the sinner, um, you know, the, the person dead in sin, uh, when they go to God um, and they're unrepentant in their sin, uh, God is not their, uh, their life. Right. I mean, in, in an objective sense, he is, but you see what I'm getting at here, right? Like yeah. God, God works unto their judgment, not unto their salvation. For yeah. The so, so there, there are important distinctions, right? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I think, you know, this is one of those times when you got to think of that scholastic adage, uh, never deny, seldom affirm, always distinguish. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, somebody could object that we're all unworthy. Why are you bringing us up now in this particular case? Well, from a canonical point of view, right, there's a sense in which we're using the term unworthy. Yeah. That is distinct from the kind of unworthiness that we would that we would all face as mere creatures approaching God. Right. So uh, and even fallen creatures in the process of being redeemed. Right. It really has to do with a person's uh, posture vis-a-vis -vis grace, right? So grace is being offered us, yes, mm -hmm. but are we accepting the grace or are we refusing it concretely uh, in the in our conduct? Are we are we right? Are we acting in such a way that um, destroys the life of charity and soul, mm -hmm. or are we talking about those imperfections in our moral life, those kinds of constant shortcomings, right? Mm -hmm where in scripture we see that uh, the, the righteous man, um, the righteous man falls seven times a day or something, right? Yep. Uh, yep. And rises. Yep. But that's venial sin that we're talking about there. We're not talking about mortal sin and perseverance, obstinate perseverance in, in grave evil. Well, that's a different yep. critter. And that's what we're yep. really talking about yep. when we're talking about worthiness or unworthiness with respect to the sacrament here. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So all those are good distinctions. Um, so I guess getting back to your original question about the difference between what we're talking about here and the excommunication, um, both of them in a sense are the uh, external recognition of the internal reality of the soul. Uh -huh. um, right. So the only me or the only uh, 
reason that someone could marshal for denying somebody communion is if they if there's a you know a moral certainty that uh, that person is in a state of mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so both both apply there. But an excommunication, uh, just to get more into the nitty gritty, that specifically is a penalty um, where somebody has uh, committed a, a named offense and um, is now barred from the physical uh, 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 community of believers. Um, so, you know, I'll just, let me just read the canon here for you. An excommunicated person is prohibited. And this is canon 1331, by the way. So an excommunicated person is prohibited, one, from celebrating the sacrifice of the Eucharist and the other sacraments, two, from receiving the sacraments. So not just communion, but all of them. Mm-hmm. Three, from administering sacramentals and from celebrating the other ceremonies of liturgical worship. Uh, and I would just note there, um, you know, other ceremonies of liturgical worship could be, um, you know, obviously all the things that priests and deacons and bishops do, but lay people are sometimes permitted to witness marriages, to preside over communion services, to do some of these other things. Um, so this would apply to those two. Um, four, from taking an active part in the celebrations listed above. So you can't be a lector or an acolyte or um you know, otherwise take some kind of active role there. Five, from exercising any ecclesiastical offices, duties, ministries, or functions. And six, from performing acts of governance. So it's pretty wide reaching, right? That if you're excommunicated, there, you're, all these six things are just all the ways in which you are no longer able to participate in the yeah, church. Yeah, you're, you're essentially treated as a non-Catholic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're essentially treated as a non-Catholic, right? Um and then uh, usually the way that that is, is remedied is just by a uh, confession and going to the proper minister. So usually a bishop or a priest, uh, and, and they will, uh, you know, draft a, a document saying the excommunication is lifted. Um, so it's like a it's a it's a formal procedure to excommunicate you, a formal procedure to recommunicate you. And there's defined things that you are no longer able to do if you're excommunicated so some Um, some excommunication right so excommunication would be reserved to the bishop or to the pope right mm -hmm. yeah so um and it's interesting a a local bishop does have the authority am i right in the catholic church to excommunicate someone yeah absolutely yeah and um I need to brush up on the new, uh, newly revised uh, penal law section. But if I'm not mistaken, there's even leeway in there for the bishop to excommunicate somebody for reasons uh, that he deems, uh, you know, worthy, right? Like he can just decide you did something bad, whatever it might be, and I'm going to excommunicate you. Uh, Now the person can have recourse against that uh, if it's on the local level. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it's something stated in the universal law, um, then it's probably uh, going to get upheld. It's probably going to get upheld. Yeah, because the bishop still has to impose it. And so they can they can resist the imposition of the penalty, uh, but but not they can't contest whether the thing is uh, an excommunicable offense. Mm-hmm. So um, but the, it's interesting, too, because there's there are two different kinds of excommunication as well. There's the there's the latte sententiae excommunication, which people 
if you read Catholic things, may or may not be familiar with. It's the more commonly talked about of the two. Um, and that one is basically, it's, it's the automatic excommunication is what that is. So you do the thing and um, you are excommunicated. Um, the next kind is called a ferende sententiae excommunication, which, which means you're not excommunicated until it's until you are excommunicated, until the, somebody excommunicates you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this raises a lot of interesting questions like, what if somebody commits a sin or, or does an action that carries a latte sententia excommunication with it, but which has not been imposed yet uh, or, or declared as such by the bishop or whoever? Um, can they still be a priest? Can, are, are they still saying the sacraments validly? Um, are they exercising power of governance validly? And uh, the answer to all of that, I think, would be yes, they are doing it validly and, and licitly, um, or perhaps not licitly, but validly, Maybe not so, licitly, you know, yeah. something like that, depending on if we're talking about sacraments or... Uh, so if we get government. into sacramental theology here, right? Um <sighs> I think, you know, there is this idea of uh, ecclesia suplet, right? Um, yep. The the church supplies what is lacking. Yep. And this this issue goes all the way back, really, to the the early church, right? Yeah. Uh, the Donatist controversy Donatist. involved yep. this sort of thing. Yep. Um, apostasy is a latte sententia excommunicable offense, right? I mean, that's right. And I think that in the ancient church, it was regarded as such. Yep. So that was the issue that precipitated the donatist controversy mm-hmm. and it, it that and that wasn't even the first time right i mean the novationists had uh, an issue with a, a similar thing the um people abandoned um the faith under threat of persecution and then then they kind of repented and wanted to assume their ministry again and the question was whether they could do so or not should yeah. their should their attempts to celebrate the sacraments be regarded as valid or invalid? Well, the position of the Catholic Church came down in favor of recognizing those actions as valid, irrespective of the fact that um, these people had, in fact, abandoned their 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 offices. Yeah. So, um, you know, and 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 that's kind of what lies behind the in sacramental theology, right? The idea that that um, the sacrament of orders, for example, carries with it an indelible character and that, you know, you're a priest forever, right? Yeah. So you, by virtue of being a priest, you have the power to confect the Eucharist validly. Um, these are sticky and interesting questions, but you could kind of see how the church arrived at this view, um, why it seemed that for the for the good of souls, this this had to be the answer, right? Because yep. otherwise, there, there would be all these these people not receiving sacraments from priests who, in their hidden lives, were um, were actually not in communion with the church. Yeah. How how we don't? There's no way we could possibly know, right, with any sort of moral certainty that um, this or that priest, particularly in in cases where you've got real social problems, right? Where, mm-hmm. like for example, in Germany, um, I, many of those guys are heretics, as far as I could tell. And um, are the faithful actually receiving sacraments from them? Well, I think the church is going to say yes. Yes. 
but fruitfully, I guess, is another question. Um, and yeah, anyway, don't want to get well, the, the priest. I mean, the, so yeah, the priest might be sinning even as he celebrates the sacrament, right? Because, yeah. because he's doing it unworthily. Yeah. Um, he's not permitted to do it because in fact, he's excommunicate or something. Yeah. Um, but, but these are, this is latis intensi excommunication though, right? That's invisible to the average person, unless we actually yeah. saw the deed or know what it was, Mo right? You could, yep. you could perform such an offense and no one knows, but you and God. Right. So that's the basic distinction here between the latte sentencia and the ferende sentencia is that it, it's, it's at the level of conscience. It places the onus um, on the offender to return of his own accord almost uh -huh. because it's, it's between, it is between him and God. If he um, knowingly does an, uh, something occult hidden um, that, that is an excommunicable offense and uh and then repents, well, he could probably, he could do that without um, suffering the canonical effects of excommunication. So it's, it's kind of the way I see it. It's, it's to get him or her to, to repent um, without sacrificing what might be there of good order in the church yeah. on, a, on a canonical level. Right. So, um, so, but we're dealing with a different beast here with, yeah. with, uh, Pelosi and, and Canon 915, which is, um, prohibiting somebody simply from receiving communion. So to say nothing of power of governance, to say nothing of other sacraments, um, of, of, uh, what were some of these other things, um, administering sacramentals, celebrating other ceremonies of liturgical worship, all of that. So this is only concerning the reception of the uh, uh of the most holy eucharist and i also would just want to make a tangential comment here too about um what happens when we do sin mortally i, I so mm -hmm. just as a tangential thing I, I really see mortal sin as its own kind of excommunication right you are um not physically right because you can you can commit a mortal sin uh um uh, privately approach communion and receive, right? So you're not bodily prevented from receiving communion, but you are in your soul. And, and so <clears throat> there, there is a sense in which uh, mortal sin is its own type of, of uh, not, not canonical excommunication, but, but a kind of ontological excommunication. Yeah. So let's talk about th this, this issue. What you're talking about is the distinction between the canonical question here and the theological reality, which yeah. the canonical, the, the, the canonical status, right, is supposed to express in law yep. a theological reality. Right. And um, and so in a manner of speaking, right? Now I'm not going to say this is in the full and perfect sense, but in a manner of speaking, mortal sin does render a person excommunicate right. in that the person is morally unable to receive communion yeah. in the church right and, and in fact no his longer... heart is out of communion with the church yes that's the thing i was going to point out yep. however yep. however this is a really important distinction too though right um there's a reason why the there's a reason why the canonical status of this person goes unaffected 
because um, because here th- there's a sacrament to fix this problem, right? I mean, we have the sacrament of reconciliation to address precisely this problem in people's lives. Right. And, and if a person were formally excommunicated, he wouldn't be able to approach that sacrament. Right. Any sacrament except for confession in the proper circumstances, right? Like usually uh, the lifting of the excommunication is reserved to certain people. Right. Now It might be the case that the bishop has given the authority to all priests of the diocese or something to, to lift the excommunication. But nonetheless, it's not just a simple go to anybody you want. Um, what I wanted to point out was that the re- what you said about confession uh, being the remedy for this uh, sin is it's it, it's got that dual purpose there where um, you're being reconciled spiritually to God, but also externally to the community, which is one reason right. it's the visible priest, right, in Persona Christi who, who is doing it. And so the the excommunic the, the the canonical censure of excommunication uh, is just part and parcel of this whole idea is it's it's a lining up of the physical with the invisible um, so but canon 915 is a little bit different it, it's it's still within this this realm of of aligning the visible with the invisible but um it's almost a stepping stone, I would say, on the way to excommunication. Um, an excommunication itself, we call it a medicinal penalty, right? It's a oh. penalty <clears throat> that is imposed uh, to, to wake somebody up, right? Uh, you know, when your kid does something wrong and you told him not to, uh, but he did it anyway, um, you punish him. And, and the goal is not for the sake of the punishment itself, but so that he will learn the consequences of his actions. So same thing with Canon 915, same thing with uh, an excommunication. Um, but Canon 915, I think more so uh, falls upon this uh, idea that we're just going to quicken your conscience for you, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're not going to bar yourself from receiving communion, we're just going to do that for you. And, and then the question yeah, so- is why? So there are two canons here, right? Yeah. Canon canon 915 and, and canon 916, right? Yeah. And I think people often confuse these two. No, what, what tell us what those those canons are. Yeah, well, yeah. So 915 is uh it basically says anyone who's excommunicated or interdicted, um, and an interdict is is basically the same thing as an excommunication, four of the six things. Um so it anybody excommunicated or interdicted or anybody obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin is not to be admitted to Holy communion. Right. Um, so, so those three categories of people uh, and then nine uh, 16 is that uh, nobody is bad or is, is uh, let me just read the canon here for you. A person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate mass or receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession unless there is a grave reason and there is no opportunity to confess. In this case, the person is to remember the obligation to make an act of perfect contrition, which includes the resolution of confessing as soon as possible. So it's kind of this dual um, uh, injunction to safeguard the integrity of the sacrament of the Eucharist from, um, you know, obstinate sinners. Mm Mm-hmm. 
as we all are right. at different times. So obviously the person who is um, who is obstinately promoting a grave evil as a good, mm-hmm. right, which would be the case in question here. Yeah. Um, this person cannot be understood to have made a perfect act of contrition. There's no presumption that such a person would have made a perfect act of contrition, right? Right. Especially if there are um, attempts at uh, dialogue, attempts at uh, reconciliation, you know, through some extra sacramental means, changing the mind of the person. Like if, if all these attempts fail, um, then it can certainly be said to be obstinate. Yeah. Right, right. And and actually, Cordiglione um, has been actively dialoguing with Speaker Pelosi yeah. for as long as he's been in office, right? I mean, yeah. and, and, and Speaker Pelosi has been promoting abortion from long before, from long before Cordiglione showed up. Yeah. So, um, right. So, he didn't take this action out of the blue, right? It wasn't, it wasn't sort of what might be described as a, uh, as a capricious, um, right. An arbitrary. Not if you've been paying attention. I mean, this is, this is in Catholic circles, this has been a discussion that's gone on, you know, well before I came into the game. Um, and, and it's, it's, well, you know, for some people, this, this was kind of out of the blue, kind of unjust for a lot of us. We're finally ready to see it happen. I've been wondering why it hasn't happened already, right? Yeah. And actually, yeah. but it has happened to, a, you know, this or that person here or there, right? Here or there, but it, yeah. But, but, but not agree with the large people scale, who, and this is a pretty big fish yeah. we're talking about. Yep, I would agree with the with a lot of the critiquers of this uh, who say, who object to it because it's not consistently applied. I would say, yeah, maybe it's not consistently applied. So let's just apply it everywhere. <laughs> it's yeah, what we're right. supposed to do. And it's well, Cardinal Burke fault. has been advocating for this for a long time, right? For this kind of thing. He wasn't yeah. naming anyone in particular, but back yeah. in 2007, he published um, a really great article, mm-hmm. um, really informative article on this question. And um, he was responding actually to attempts that had been made a few years earlier than that to codify in American in American Episcopal policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the treatment of politicians who publicly advocate for abortion. And the other thing that was mentioned was euthanasia. Um, and Burke was, there were people on both sides of that question in the Episcopate. And Burke was arguing that um, historically, this question is open and shut. It's very clear. And, um, and so I, I kind of, I kind of, as it just goes to show you how far back this goes, we're now in 2022, as we record this, Burke's article was 2007, and he's reaching back to um, a discussion that was, that was live in 2003. And that didn't come out of nowhere. Right. I mean, that, that itself goes back quite a long time. So, um, so what can we say about the, the historicity of this question, like what th- this idea of barring people from communion for um, for uh, obstinate perseverance and manifest grave sin. I mean, it's as ancient as the New Testament, right? Let who, whoever eats and drinks the cup unworthily eats and drinks condemnation, right? So uh, 
there's, you know, the, the seeds of this idea, even in scripture, uh, there's, there is this sense of unworthiness to receive, um, and, and, uh, which carries with it the injunction upon the minister of the sacrament to not, uh, mm-hmm. give it to people who are in such a, a, a state of soul. Um, but I mean, we see it pop up throughout history. I mean, there are, uh, every, every canon of every council with anathemas attached to it is, is a way of not receiving uh, Holy Communion. Uh, uh, I mean, it, all, it goes all the way up to the 1917 code. It's, 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 it's just thoroughly in the tradition that those who are not um, publicly, or those who, I should say, those who are publicly in a state of sin uh, f- for reasons of scandal, for reasons of uh, maintaining the integrity of the sacrament itself, uh, for reasons of safeguarding the, um, you know, what's left of the integrity of the soul of the, of the sinner themselves, um, are not to receive communion. And certainly it's been a question in, in recent decades, especially in the United States. I mean, with, with Roe v. Wade, uh, the, the, we call it Eucharistic coherence, right? The, the question yeah, of right, Eucharistic right. coherence. So it, it's been in the conversation, you know, locally uh, for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, we, um, we see, um, we see references to it in the fathers of the church, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Yep. And I mean, really all through our tradition, both East and West, right? This is not, it's not even a uniquely um, sort of Roman Catholic problem. Yeah. By no means. Yeah. Um, It's mentioned in Grazia, in, in uh, Grazian, right? Yeah. Gratian. And um and it was in, it was in the 1917 code, as you said, and and also um, the wording was revised for the for the uh, 1983 code, but mm-hmm. but it's substantially the same the same point, right? Right. So, um, so right, this is not this is not like a new development. And now here's the interesting part of this, right? Um, the accusation is often made that the bishops are sort of like playing politics. They're letting their personal politics get in the way of their governance of the church or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about this issue is Canon 915 is routinely applied in cases of divorced and civilly remarried Catholics mm-hmm. who have not received a decree of nullity from the church regarding yep. the first marriage. Yep. I mean, that's the canon that's implied. That that's the canon that's used, right? Yep. So they're publicly. So what you've got here is a case, right, of a person who is obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin. Mm-hmm. That's um, not really a judgment here about the personal culpability, right? Exactly. It's not a matter of this. They're not making any judgments about the subjective state of the person, but their objective yeah. situation vis-a-vis yeah. Yeah. church teaching regarding morality. Yep. So um, the church teaches that sacramental matrimony is indissoluble. And thus that if you divorce and then marry someone else while your original spouse is still alive, then you're committing adultery, right? And marriage is a public reality, therefore, uh, it's manifest, right? 
It's a matter of grave sin because it's yep. adultery. Yep. Um, it's manifest and it's obstinate perseverance because it's not the kind of thing that one does on one occasion, right? But that you you live in this condition. Yeah. That's kind of nine fifteen right there. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, um, but it's not even the, that's not even the only case. That's the case that's probably best known to the average American Catholic, right? Because you might have a parent or an aunt or a cousin or a brother or sister in that situation, but, um, but nobody makes the connection to Canon 915. They don't make the connection, but that's what's going on, right? It is Canon 915. Right. Um, now historically there were lots of other people who were implicated under that, uh, under that, uh, Canon, the Canon 915 didn't exist as such until the code of 1983, but, but what that canon expresses, right? There were many, there were actually many other categories of persons historically who've been lumped under that. Prostitutes, for example, or yeah. <laughs> usurers, um, right? People who lent money at, at, at usurious rates, uh, yeah. or, or um, uh, what was the other one? Drunkards. Yeah. Right? People who would just, the party animals. I mean, they would be in that that category um the list is pretty long actually of people who just live lives unbecoming christians yeah um and so the idea that a person this is what i find kind of just interesting about the way people react to this the idea that that a public catholic exercising a public trust would in the exercise of that trust promote objective grave evil as a social good, right? That that doesn't tip the scale on Canon 915. I find that to be utterly mind-boggling. I just, yeah. I, I can't understand how, how yeah. you don't see that. Yeah. Well, I think it stems from, and you, you said it at the beginning of, of, of what you just said, is that uh, people think that this is a purely political issue. And you know, I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, the issue of publicly available abortion. Okay, I'll say that's a political issue. But since when did uh, political issues become divorced from moral issues? Right? If you read the uh, like uh, Aristotle's politics, right, uh -huh. and, and his ethics too. And he was even a pagan. He, he, and he was a pagan. Yeah. Politics. And I'm not even talking about abortion specifically, but try to come up with a consistent uh, legal system for a country without any reference to morality. And uh, you, well, you can't do it, right? You can't. No, of course not. And Aristotle was was really was really astute on this matter, right? Yeah. Directly linking ethics and politics. To politics, right? yes. Politics is downstream from ethics. Um, so, so on one hand, I want to say like. Well, I would like to reassert the church's uh, investment and involvement in politics when politics concerns uh, morals. Yeah, um, you know, right. I don't, I don't want to shy away from the idea that the church should be involved in in politics in that area. Uh, certainly, there's other areas where the church yeah. shouldn't. And it's formal church teaching. It's right. formal church teaching that that actually the church is yeah. involved in political questions. Yep. In as much as they touch upon um, faith and morals, objective moral law, right? Yeah. Yep. So, um, yep. 
but but on the other hand, I, I do want to affirm that in the other, in this other sense that uh, it's not uh, you know a purely political issue. It's we're talking about morality. We're not trying to talk about politics here. You know, in as much it's as you can separate politics and morality, a political position to advocate for something that's grossly immoral. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to do so, not it's not as if this is a subtle thing, right? It's not as if she's sort of making a concession to tolerate an evil or attempting to mitigate to, to mitigate an evil. Um, and in order to attempt to mitigate that evil, she has to sort of carve out a space for it to occur in some limited way, right? Mm-hmm. Some limited and controlled way. That would be a different issue. And I think I think that's the place where, you know, criticizing um, it, it might be it might be a little over the top, right? To take to take a person who is saying, "Look, I'm opposed to abortion," um, and you know, you could fill in the blank. Could be some other moral issue, but yeah, I'm opposed to abortion. Uh, in our society, I see it as politically unrealistic to eliminate abortion. So, what I think can be done is to create is to create schemes that would kind of deter abortion substantially or make it much more difficult to have an abortion. But we have to create a legal structure in which that abortion that we can't completely eliminate from society is going to be contained. Yeah. Well, that would be, that would be say that about every uh, uh, civil law, that condemns a moral law, right? So murder, okay, or or theft. Nobody makes the laws against murder and theft who thinks that the law is going to prevent every occurrence of of that evil, right? Nobody nobody thinks that. So, but but so then, what's the goal of the law? Well, to to mitigate the effects of the evil that would otherwise occur, and to punish what you can. Yep. Right. Where yep. where the evil um, occurs so yep. as to establish um, so as to restore justice. Right. Yes. Yep. So. Um, so I would just affirm it's a political issue. Uh, and so what? You know, well, let's let's get the church into politics a little bit. Let's get. Yeah. The, and and yeah. what's at issue here, though, in the political, I just want to be clear, what's at issue in this case is not. It's not an instance of a person trying as hard as they can to reduce the incidence of something terrible mm-hmm. and saying that there's a limit to what we can accomplish in law, yeah. given the social realities in yeah. which we find ourselves. Yeah. Um, that's not what's happening. Yeah. The social reality in which we find ourselves is far to the right morally uh, of, of Speaker Pelosi right on this question the the average american right believes that abortion should be fairly strictly limited yep right now the average american is not pro-life by my definition of pro-life yeah but the average american is certainly far less pro-abortion than speaker pelosi is yeah and and therefore what you've got in this particular case is someone who's attempting to push further in the direction of advancing this grave evil yeah that's what's really at stake here yeah. in the eyes of yeah. of archbishop cordelione yeah and I, I would add to that too um she's even doing something worse uh than this which would be 
I think still a, a condemnable position, but to say, um, you know, it's the whole, I'm personally against it, but politically for it, you know, Biden, I think says this, um, to recognize that the United States, at least under the current um, law or interpretation of the constitution from Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and, and, and other um, Supreme Court cases, even if it's established in the law that uh, in the civil law that somebody has this so-called right to an abortion, um, that doesn't make it okay for a Catholic politician to support that law. Right. Or that Supreme Court judgment. So you can't get off on that. You, you have to say, I acknowledge it is a moral evil and the government is wrong and I'm going to work for to change it. So it's right. Yep. To change it. So it's right. And that we have ways to do Catholic that in our, in our society. Right. You can amend the Constitution. You can. Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of things. But instead yeah. at the news, and this is actually what 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 precipitated um, Cordelione's action. Right. Like what why it happened now was that in the wake of um, you know this leak about Roe v. Wade maybe getting overturned, yeah. um, Pelosi joined many of the, uh, of the other people in her party in immediately beating the, beating the drum for um, codifying abortion in federal law. Now, why, why would oh. you do that? You would think if you were personally opposed, you might say, oh, well, thank God, yep. I can finally stop this thing where I have to say, well, look, it's a constitutional right and I have to defend, I have to uphold the constitution. So um, my hands are tied until we can get, maybe you could say until we could get the law changed, this is the system we live under. Yeah. But she can't, but that's not even what she's doing. Yeah. She's resisting the, the change in the interpretation of the constitution, re- yeah. reverting back to the claim that the constitution, in fact, as is objectively clear, does not actually show abortion as a, a right. Right. Yeah. So I think um, just to kind of bring this back around to where we're talking about Canon 915, um, it's certainly obstinate, right? So we're talking about the obstinate um, manifest and gravity of the sin, the the obstinacy, the gravity and the, and the um, uh, obstinate manifest gravity. Yeah. Of the sin. Um, So she's certainly obstinate, right? Um, That much has been, uh, um, shown by especially in archbishop corleone's letter where he said they've been talking for i think he said like 10 years or something yeah. like that of, of trying to dialogue and that's just with him and that's just with him yep um so it's uh obstinate it's it's clearly it's manifest right um it's she talks about it all the time it's on it's on c-span for anybody that watches c-span yeah. um and and in other publications um and she invokes and her Catholic faith to do it, which, to is, do it, which is the biggest part bizarre. of the scandal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the gravity of it, right? We're talking uh, about abortion, which is the killing of an innocent human life. Um, you know, there's already been plenty of ink spilled on the gravity uh, and depravity of, of abortion. So it meets the qualifications uh, for Canon 915 here. Right, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, clearly it does. And... Um, so I guess so Eucharistic coherence is a big thing. This is what they've been talking about, right? So, so in, in case you missed that, um, we talked about it before. Eucharistic coherence is the idea that the way we 
the way we behave toward the Eucharist, the way the, our, our sacramental discipline regarding the celebration and reception of the Eucharist should reflect our formal teaching about the Eucharist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It both um, reflects and deepens communion mm-hmm. in the church. Right. Um, it, um, and what does that mean? Well, it implies that a person is, uh, is um, living the life of grace, right. That a person accepts the teachings of the church on matters of faith and morals. Um, that one conducts one's life in conformity with those teachings, right? That's what Eucharistic coherence would involve. And when we have Eucharistic incoherence, it creates scandal, right? Because it suggests to us either that the Eucharist isn't what we say it is, or that it doesn't do what we say it does, or that the thing being done in this case is not actually a sin. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the the big reasons to invoke Canon 915 is scandal. And we've already mentioned some of the other ones too, like the safeguarding of the sacrament itself, the integrity of the sacrament, um, and the the soul of the communicant, or as it were, the non-communicant. But scandal, I think, um, is the most uh, uh, recognizable um, implication of all of this is, is... we can't admit somebody to communion who everybody knows is not in communion. Yeah. Is the basic so let's, let's pause for a second and, and talk about some of the idiotic commentary that's been going on out there. Um, is it the case as some have implied that, um, that Cordiglione just has no rights in this regard that he that he's usurping an authority here that belongs only to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that belongs only to the Pope, obviously not. I mean, the Bishop is uh, the Vicar of Christ for his own diocese, right? His whole role is to safeguard all of the sacraments and to promote their, yeah, their, right. their integrity uh, within his diocese. Um, and so, no, the, the Pope, well, let's put it this way, the, the bishop exercises uh, authority over you um, as your ordinary, right? Actually, in the law, he's called the local ordinary. Yeah, tell us what that means, because that's a, it's an interesting term. And yeah. I, you see it in canon law, but they don't define it, at least not like if you look it up in the back, it's like, what does that really mean? I don't know. Oh, yeah, no, they define it. A local ordinary would be... Um, it refers to the the diocesan bishop basically yeah why don't you just call him a bishop though that's the, right i mean it, it kind of confuses yeah. the matter so the ordinary so there's the difference between an ordinary and a local ordinary the ordinary uh can refer to a bishop or a religious superior <laughs> and the local uh-huh. ordinary basically is just the the bishop so yeah i don't know why that would be the case um two thousand years of legal tradition who knows yeah um but um, but the, the so the Pope would exercise jurisdiction over somebody extraordinary, extraordinarily. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not his immediate uh, in a sense, 
you know, he does exercise his jurisdiction immediately, yeah. right? Not through another. But you see the distinction here is that the Pope exercising jurisdiction outside of his diocese is valid and listed and everything else, but but it's it's a kind of extraordinary use of, of that power. So the, I would say the bishop, the diocesan bishop of wherever you are, and Cordelione in the case of um, uh, Speaker Pelosi, um, has every right to do that. I, yeah, I, yeah I'd, I would love to maybe talk deeper with somebody who may, you know, have something more to say than that. But um, yeah, I, I just don't see how that objection can be maintained for very long. So let's, um, yeah, let's, let's go back to Vatican One here for a second, just to make this point sort of clear and correct. It's, it's a tough question, a difficult one to understand. Um, but what the document actually says in the first Vatican Council is that is that the Pope has universal uh, and it does say ordinary. It does say ordinary. Yeah. Yep. It does say ordinary, uh, yeah. but it does. universal, but, ordinary, immediate. And yeah. Yeah. But uh, and he's, you know, by virtue of his office as um, as the universal pastor and teacher of all the faithful. Yeah. But not in such a way as to reduce the local bishop to a middle management position, right? right? That that was clearly condemned in the controversies that arose um, due to really, I mean, sort of understandable uh, misinterpretations of the document. Yep. But um, but the, the church clearly rejected that view, that, that, yep. that by saying this thing about the Pope, it means that the local bishop doesn't have any authority of his own. I think yep. what you'd really say is that the local bishop exercises in his own church the authority that the pope exercises over the universal church. And yeah, mutatis mutandis, but yeah, it's 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 kind of hard to pin that down. I mean, because the yeah, I think as a general rule that that's true. That's true. And I think what I would say just I, I didn't want to muddy the waters too much, but when the pope exercises his ordinary jurisdiction outside of his own diocese, he's it's it's sort of like an extraordinary, ordinary use of his power, right? Um, yeah, the, yeah. I'm trying to like thread the needle. I know what you're saying. You know, what so I'm basically, saying. you're saying that you're saying that it belongs to him ordinarily to have the prerogative to intervene. Um, yeah. In um, it, for the sake of the uh, for the sake of the governance of the universal church, yes, he has direct responsibility over all the faithful. Yeah, right for the good of souls. Yeah, um, you're as much a member of his flock as as anyone else is. Yeah, um, and so if something catastrophically wrong is is happening in your diocese, he he has the authority. It, it's his ordinary authority to intervene in that case for the sake of the unity of the church and the good of souls. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's a separate question from saying that's, that's, that's not saying, right. That the local ordinary doesn't possess authority. Right. On these questions. Right. It's just a completely ridiculous criticism. Yeah. And it's never been the other, the understanding of the church either that, um, that the Pope is the one who gives the bishops their authority. It's in virtue of, of orders of, of their, Episcopal office. Right. Right. So um, let's, let's think about, um, let's think about um, the significance of this particular 
question and I, we're, you know, we're, we're getting a little long, so I want to, we'll, we'll bring it to a close here pretty soon, but I, I want to talk about the broader kind of cultural, historical, ecclesiological question. When it comes to bishops, um, well, this particular individual becomes a hinge point of a controversy that now has bishops taking sides with respect to this person for or against this person, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some bishops have backed Cordiglione and said that they would also bar her from communion in in their diocese. Now, as you've pointed out, right, she hasn't actually been formally interdicted or excommunicated, right? That's right. not the nature of this particular yep. of this particular proclamation, right? But um, but nonetheless, he's made a case that Canon nine fifteen applies to her, and so you'd think other bishops might look at this and say, "Oh, I, I agree. That case is pretty clear. Um, we should be unified in our treatment." of this particular person, right? But in fact, bishops have come down on different sides of this question. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things I think that could actually be said about this. Um, there's sort of the ecclesiastical politicky uh, side to the question, but then there's um, there's also this, this idea that the canon actually is not directed to bishops. The canon uh, if, if you read it, let me read it just again here for us. Um, those who have been excommunicated or interdicted uh, after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So in the, in the kind of strict sense, who is this canon directed towards? Well, whoever happens to be administering communion at the parish you might be at, uh, that's, that's who actually is directed to. Um, indirectly, it's directed to the, and I would say this more so applies to 916 that we read earlier, the, the, the person in question, right? The person mm-hmm. who is persevering in manifest grave sin. Um, but I think we read last year, maybe year before, uh, some priest in South Carolina, I think it was, denied Joe Biden communion. Yeah. Um, no bishop said anything about to my knowledge, at least, denying yeah. in communion. And it could be left up to the discretion of some lay extraordinary minister of Holy Communion to, to deny somebody communion. So the, now the way I read the canon, though, right, is to say that if if I'm if I'm morally persuaded, if, if I can arrive at no other conclusion in my judgment that this person obstinately perseveres in manifest grave sin, mm-hmm. And I'm the minister of Holy Communion, even if I'm a lay person. Yeah. I don't have, I actually don't have really discretion in this matter. I, I'm i actually um, obligated to withhold communion. That's the way I read the yeah. canon. Is that an right. incorrect reading? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, you know, like if, if, if um, you know, Joe Schmo was administering Holy Communion and um, somebody who is obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin, whoever that might be, whatever the sin might be, uh, were to uh, approach his communion line, like on the side or, or whatever, at, at parishes that do that, um, and he were to refuse said person communion, I canonically, I don't think he could be penalized for that. Now, maybe somebody would try Practically, to. Practically, he probably would be a bit. 
But I mean, I, I've heard of people getting thrown on the bus for this sort of thing. Sure. But, but yeah, I mean, I think but the my reading would have been in the right. My reading of the canon, yeah, is that yeah. is that that's what he's got to do. Yeah. So so here's the thing: is that this is one of the big differences between this and an excommunication. Mm-hmm. An excommunication is imposed on the offender. This canon is an injunction to the minister of communion to not give communion to somebody. And so what Archbishop Cordelione has done is he's made that judgment explicit, that, that private judgment explicit and public and ordered the, um, uh, the ministers of communion, whether ordinary or extraordinary in his diocese uh, to do the same. And he's within okay. his powers as Bishop to, to do that. And, and, and so, and this is why then this is, this is the a confusing thing for, I think a lot of people, including yeah. some intelligent commentators, why, why doesn't this apply across diocesan lines? Why do you have to have bishops saying they're going to do it too? Yeah. So there's a sense in which it does apply across diocesan lines that like this law, Canon 915 binds. That's the universal code. Every, yeah. Binds every, um, minister of communion in the Latin rite. Um, and I'm sure there's a corresponding canon in the Eastern code that <laughs> I did yeah. study. So I'm sure that's in there too. Um, so it, it binds everyone. Uh, but, but that's the distinction is that it binds the minister of communion, not the recipient of communion. And so it doesn't follow Pelosi because Pelosi is not the minister. Pelosi is the recipient. But it should kind of follow her in practice because in theory, everyone should be denying her communion anyway. Right. So kind of 916 does apply to her. She is actually, she should not be presenting herself for Holy Communion. That's right. But what we're dealing with here is that she's forbidden to be given Holy Communion. Yeah. And, and so, so the issue, as I see it, is the problem arises um, not because of the question in principle, right? If, if she is obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin, then under Canon 915, she is to be denied Holy Communion. No minister of Holy Communion in the Catholic Church is to give her communion, right? right? And we don't okay, need the, the proclamation of a bishop in order to refuse her communion. That's another thing that I yeah, want. You don't to actually need that. You yeah. don't actually need that. But, but um, then you have this problem, right? That a practical level, one always wonders, well, is she um, obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin or yeah. not? Is she one of these people or isn't she one of these people? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's pretty obvious that she is. But I guess not that many, maybe people don't pay that much attention to politics or the damage of Eucharistic incoherence is now so severe that it's not clear to many people that in fact, she does fall into this category. Yeah. And so a public, a public direction, right. uh, From the Bishop is, is, uh, is is required at least to to make it clear. Well, that's the decision. No. You, you don't have to um, worry about this judgment. I've made the judgment. She falls into this category. Treat her accordingly under Canon 915. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, the, uh, again, though, at a practical kind of level, right, the question arises, well, I mean, w- wouldn't the other bishops just agree? It, yeah, shouldn't they? Yeah, I agree. I think they, 
I think there's, I mean, you know, on the level of truth, kind of ontologically, again, speaking, um, she, either she does or doesn't uh, meet the requirements for this canon. Um, on a, on the practical level, I'm with, I'm with you. I think it's pretty clear uh, to anyone who knows anything about her and anything who anybody who knows anything about this canon, which in theory, uh, every bishop should know about the canon and especially the bishops where she resides should know about her. Um, so yeah, what do you do? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe one suggestion I would have is just if it persists, go with the full on excommunication. Um, cause then that does bind her personally and everywhere. And it binds yeah. more so and, than and that, it actually binds other bishops. Right. right. And if they, and if they decided that they were going to side with her, well, that would be a serious that now you'd be yeah. getting into territory like like Arius or or Luther or Henry the Eighth, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, and you would have an actual schism. It'd be bizarre, maybe, maybe. to have a schism yeah. form around Nancy Pelosi. But I mean, yeah. I, I guess it's not beyond the realm of imagination. Right. No, certainly not beyond the realm of imagination. I mean, whether whether we think it's probable or not, we can certainly imagine the scenario. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's and that's I, I, yeah. I'll be the first one to say, and I hope you know, that this is uh, acceptable within the realm of discourse, but I'll be the first one to say, like, I, we should be excommunicating a lot more people, like it's there. And um, a lot of scandal is, has been had by not implementing uh, the, the penal laws of the church, which if you think that Rome somehow doesn't care about imposing penalties, well, why did they just reform the book six on penalties in the code. Like, I think it's, it's very clear. They want this to be implemented and, and, and um, they care about uh, uh, safeguarding the, in one sense, it's about safeguarding the public image of the church. I think that's the lowest sense in which this matters. Oh. The highest sense in which this matters is uh, bringing salvation to souls, right? If right. you are placing yourself outside the church spiritually, then and you're not placing yourself outside the church physically, then um, clearly you think that you're not doing something wrong. We're here to tell you you're yeah, doing something We can't wrong. just let you walk off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to put you in a cage and drag you away from the cliff. <laughs> right, right. So, um, so let me let me let you have the some final thoughts here. I, I want to. I'm going to ask you to speculate. Maybe okay. I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but do you think this is maybe? Um, a tipping point. I mean, you have a very high profile person in this particular case. Do you yeah. think that maybe this is a watershed moment? What do you think is going to happen over the next several years with respect to this question of Eucharistic coherence? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the, unfortunately, in this respect, the church is in large part, especially the church in the United States, is in large part um, becoming divided along the same lines as the culture. Mm -hmm. So the culture is, and, and both kind of in the culture, at least kind of in unvirtuous ways. We have this idea of, um, uh, you know, kind of paradigmatically, we've got toxic masculinity and also we have the rise of kind of like a cultural androgyny or like a, a false um, feminized masculinity where are the real men, you know? So, so that's, that's kind of um, one example of, of, of this uh, shift to the extremes 
uh, mm-hmm. that I see in the culture. There's, we have the radical right and the radical left and the moderates are disappearing. I see that happening in the church, maybe in a little bit of a different way. Um, certainly in, in everybody's perception, you're seeing those categories talked about in the church. You're going to have the, um, the, well, the, the trads, you know, like the rad trads and then the, um, the modernists on, on, on it does seem as if it does seem as if people are being forced into sides on, you know, the German synodal way on one, on the one hand. Yeah. Or, or a very tratty kind of um, alternative. But what I'm pointing out here is that, but it's more than that. It's like, there's no, um, you know, there's no spectrum. It's just one half and the other half and both halves are extreme. Um, There's not even, there's, there's not quarters even. It's not like Mm -hmm. moderate, right, moderate left. It's just, you're, you're far right. And, and, you know, you just hate, people or you're far left and you, you know, uh, hate people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Hate people. Yeah. Um, you want to murder babies and you know, whatever. Uh, so all the polemics. And so where do I see the church going from here? I do think it'll be part of a bigger watershed moment. Um, before we got on the recording here, we, we looked up the bishops who supported, uh, Cordelione and it was somewhere in the vicinity of, seven eight ish um yeah i think there might be more than that but i'm I, sure there's i'm sure there's more that uh, don't publicly say anything pub, pub, about the public ones right yeah um and, and so unfortunately that's kind of where we're at it's like somebody does something that's mildly controversial and then you get bishops who rally behind that guy and you get bishops who rally against that guy and that's true, I think, in this in the society uh, as well as in the church. Unfortunately, um, what I don't like about what you're saying, though, is that is that 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 ends in schism. It does, yeah, it does, because we're polarized. I mean, it's that, and I think to the credit of people in the church, let's say on the political left, they they have this preoccupation with being divisive, mm-hmm. and. I do find that actually to be very interesting. Why this preoccupation with being divisive or or with division? And some of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we want to present ourselves to the unchurched as as coherent, as unified, uh, which is a good thing, right? The biggest scandal in the church is all the divisions. I'm not talking about just within the physical Catholic church today. I'm talking about all the different Christian denominations, mm-hmm. um, all of it. Um, so I think we should be sensitive to division, uh, but not at the expense of salvation, right? Because ultimately what's going to happen on the last day, a big honking division. Well, people are going to be divided from, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Those in his right and those in his left, right? Yep, exactly. And so, Oh, it's, um, yeah, uh, this is a long rambling answer to a, a, a speculative question, but yeah, I think, I think we're going to have to come to terms with it soon. Um, yeah, it seems church, to me too, right. That we have to come to terms with it soon. There, yeah. there is going to have to be some resolution to this. It cannot go yeah. on this way forever. Yeah. It will not go on this way. Yeah. forever. A house divided against itself cannot yeah. stand. It just won't go on this way forever. Yeah. Sooner or later, there's going to be, the church is going to come together on it or the church is going to divide over it. Yeah. And 
I, I just don't, I, I fail to see how it could be otherwise than that. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's something that I, I pray for. And, um, I think we all should, I think, you know, part of this, what's causing this kind of division is, um, like I said, this coming out of the 20th century, all these wars, all these, uh, you know, humanitarian crises, and you get all, you get this, especially the, the older generation who has like clear memories of this, right? And I'm not even talking about the world wars necessarily anymore, even though those were big parts of it. I'm talking about um, uh, the, the uh, um, you know, like Vietnam, Korea, especially the remnant, all these remnants of, mm-hmm. of communism, um, uh, uh, you know, fall of Soviet Union, um, all these things. Um, and then 2000, you know, 9-11, 2001 was not too far along after that. So then now we have the wars on terror. Um, so much division, right? Like actually horrible division that, you know, that caused so much death. And I think there is a, a, a sensibility that we need to have towards that. Um, but I think it, it was lost. Uh, w- one thing that was lost in that was the right understanding of when to divide the wheat yeah, from the chaff, right? right? Like right. we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, flippantly divide. We shouldn't, we, you know, we should tailor what we say in an amicable and uh, approachable way, whatever other adjectives you want to add to that. But, but division is real, right? Like there, there is fact, a division is the default condition in the fallen world, right? Yeah. And the church exists to overcome that division. Yeah. So the idea that you would, that you would somehow um, accuse the church of being divisive just by upholding its constant teaching and tradition is just a bizarre i mean from a catholic perspective yeah. it's bizarre it's, it's bizarre for two reasons one because it's not true in one sense right we are the organism of not division but reconciliation right right if you refuse this you are refusing the one thing you're trying to seek but on the other hand to accuse the church of fostering division is uh of course kind of true right um we uh, you know yeah, part christ of, comes to bring a sword right yeah he, a sword yes and on the last day right like we you we have to preach division uh in order to get the message across right we're divided uh-huh. from the by from god by the fall and you know we're trying to make you not be divided from us on the last day uh, but you will be if you don't repent. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. And then from that comes these, you know, excommunications and these Canon 915s and as a way to get people back. Again, they just bring the they just bring the canonical status in line with the theological reality. That's what's yeah. going on. Yeah. So yeah. um thanks for talking with us. And it's been a, a good it's been a good conversation. Um, yeah. Good. And um, yeah. So um, thank you all out there for, for listening. And um, again, don't forget to you know like and subscribe and do all that stuff. 
Um, it really helps. All right. Have a great, uh, have a great day.